really, really great. Well, um, we're in Genesis chapter 21 today, and today I'm going to stick to the text. Won't that be a change of pace? <laughs> I have to do it because my dearly beloved brother Chuck is right there. Look, Chuck is here. I must tell you, he's not here to receive something I might have to offer. He's here to make sure I, stay, I stick to the text. I know what he's doing. I know why he's there. Uh, and so you could pray for me if you don't. Uh, we're in Genesis chapter 21 uh, today. Uh, take a look at verse 1, and we'll, we'll pick up the pace just a little bit. Then, and I mentioned to you that's a time indicator. It follows the events of Genesis 20. Then the Lord took note of Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah as he had promised. And I called attention to those two marvelous phrases you see in that verse, as he had said, and as he had promised. He's a God who can be counted on. If he says it, he will do it. But here's the rub. The timing is his. I mentioned to you last week that God made this promise of uh, the birth of a child uh, 25 years prior to the conception and birth of the child. So God made the promise to Abraham and Sarah, but they had to wait 25 years for Isaac to come. And this is very tough for us, the timing of God. We're very now people, and we would like uh, immediate gratification. But perhaps the most difficult discipline of the Christian life is the one in which we are called upon to wait, to wait, to wait, to wait, until God's perfect timing. So 25 years uh, later, the time is now uh, upon us for this promise to be fulfilled. And can you imagine the joy? Uh, Here's Sarah, advanced in years. She's 90. Uh, Abraham is 100. They're well beyond the childbearing years, as you know. And now they become parents for the first time. So just on that basis, the rejoicing uh, undoubtedly was great. But there's something even more behind it. Let me refresh your memory by reading to you Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3. We call it the Abrahamic covenant, God's covenant with Abram. The Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, very interesting promise to make to a childless man. I'll make you a great nation. I'll bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing, and I'll bless those who bless you. The one who curses you, I'll curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. This made to a man whose family was rather limited. (laughs) There was he and his wife. They were childless. And now when a child is born, my heavens, this meant more than just that parents now have a child. It meant, oh, my goodness, we could trust God. He keeps his word. It meant that. You will see Abraham and Sarah growing in their progressive faith experience. God tells them to move from a place in which he was familiar or of the Chaldees to go to a place still yet unfamiliar. I may go to the place which I will show you. And Abraham by faith does. But there were many other tests of faith along the way, not the least of which was, here's my promise that the nations of the world will be blessed by you and your descendants, but he has no descendants to speak of. And then to believe on God, you see, and their faith is growing, and now they rejoice over the fact that God's promise has been uh, fulfilled. And so the birth of Isaac is a reminder to them and to us that God keeps his word, but it's in his own way and in his own time. So verse 3, Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac. But that wasn't, that wasn't Abraham's decision. Do you know God ordained, mandated that the child would be called Isaac? And he did this back in Genesis 17, verse 19. God said, no, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. God said that. You will do this. Because Isaac means something. Do you know what it means? It means laughter. Right. Uh, God announced his intentions to uh, provide a child for Sarah. She laughed at that time. It was in derision and doubt. 
It wasn't a good thing for her to do. She did this sort of in her heart, but God knew of it. We read this in Genesis 18:12. Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I have become old, <coughs> shall I have pleasure? My Lord being old also. So God made the promise, and you can see, oh, yeah, right. I'm 90, Abe is 100, give me a break. Yeah, right. And so so uh, to memorialize, let's just put it that way, uh, Sarah's uh, lack of faith response, God said, you, you, you will name your child Isaac, meaning um, laughter. So she doubted God, uh, but it didn't always stay that way. She's growing. Abraham is growing. Are you growing spiritually? Um, do you mind if I tell you you are, if you're Christian, whether you think you are or not? Because it doesn't have much to do with you. It is God's purpose for you and I to be brought forth. Do you know one day he will present us holy and blameless and beyond reproach? That's the testimony of Scripture. Well, good night. You and I have a long way to go. So that's God's doing. Do you know the Scripture says he who began a good work in us will complete it? He's the author and finisher of the faith. He authored it. He will, he will complete it. It's his intention to bring us forth to be like Christ. On Wednesday night, we were speaking of this in more detail as we looked at Romans chapter 8, uh, verses 28. You, you know this one. God uses all things for good to those who love him, called according to his purpose. In other words, Christians. And, and, uh, and then it talks about God's purpose in using all things for the good. And Romans eight twenty nine that we might be conformed, it says, to the image of his son, Jesus being the firstborn son. And then the text says that God might present him with many other brethren, men and women, whose natures have been overcome by the very presence of God in our lives, by God using even difficult life circumstances to conform us to the image of his son, because the father does not want uh, um, to have an only child. <laughs> he, he, he wants the firstborn son to always remain the firstborn. The Lord Jesus has preeminence, but he wants to give him a family. And, and so God bringing us forth to be like Jesus really doesn't have much to do with us. It all has to do with his grand and glorious redemptive purpose. So whether you know it or not, you're growing. They're growing. I can prove it to you. Let me read to you what Hebrews 11.11 says of Sarah, who initially laughed, scorned, doubted God's promise. Hebrews 11.11. By faith, even Sarah herself received ability to conceive even beyond the proper time of life since she considered him faithful who had promised. Wow. But she didn't consider God to be faithful to his promise to begin with. She grew that way. Abraham is growing. First God said, move to an unknown land. That required a measure of faith. Then God said, you'll have a child. Believe me, that required faith. Do you know what God's going to require of this couple in the next chapter, Genesis 22, which we will eventually, maybe, perhaps, I doubt it, get there? It's going to require the child of them. It's going to say, now take your son Isaac, your only son Isaac, and offer him to me on Mount Moriah, Mount Moriah. You can go there today, by the way, it still exists. In Jerusalem. But notice God doesn't make that requirement of Abram and Sarah initially. He doesn't require Isaac, their only child, initially. He's very sensitive. And so he wants us to develop our faith muscles and exercise them more and more. So could I tell you something that may ruin your day, but I think it's true? If you're a Christian walking with the Lord, things are going to get more, not less, challenging for you. And for me, because the roots of the faith, when they go deeper into the soil of our faith, allow God to turn up the burner to give us a chance to exercise our faith muscles even more. I don't like it. Neither do you. Too bad. 
God didn't ask for my opinion, nor yours. Having been bought with a price, he owns us. He could do what he wants. Thank him. His intentions are good and kind. They are to shed us, prune us of excess baggage, readying us for citizenship, which is in heaven. But to get us there requires a lot. Movement, change, even sometimes loss. So notice God did not require their son initially, but over the course of time and years, and they receiving the opportunity of seeing God trustworthy, then finally God does require that of him. So if you're feeling, good night, I've walked with the Lord for these many years, the challenges seem to be getting more severe. Yeah, that's the normal Christian life. They will. And that should, in a way, encourage you and me, oh God, apparently you can entrust this trial to me, for though sometimes I'm tempted to strike out at you, be angry with you, and not even talk to you, still apparently you must know I could handle this. I never would have during the infancy of my spiritual life, but now I can. I have enough history with you to see that you will see me through this you will bring me forth so they are growing sarah the laugher makes it into the faith honor roll now verse four abraham circumcised his son isaac when he was eight days old as god commanded him there's a lot could be said about why circumcision takes place on the eighth day. God's not arbitrary. There's nothing in the Bible that's extraneous. It's all essential. God didn't mandate uh, circumcision on the sixth day nor the ninth, but it was the eighth day. There are some medical people here and others who've read about this. It's not a subject I'm that interested in, so I don't know much about it. But apparently, uh, medical people can identify certain things in the development of an infant such that the eighth day is quite a significant day. Someone in the last class said there's something called vitamin K, and it's instrumental in the clotting capacity that we have so that it comes into fruition on the eighth day so that in circumcision a child won't bleed to death. Now, I can't substantiate that. I'm not interested, to tell you the truth. Uh, um, but you may know more about it. Does anyone know why the eighth day medically is a significant? You could read about this. You can, you can Google it or research it or something like that if you want to. All I know is the eighth day was an important day. What do you think, Tom? Why circumcision? Oh, now, Tom's asking, uh, evading the question I put uh, to you, which is a very excellent technique. You should run for office, and so. Uh, but Tom's question is a good one. Why circumcision? Why this whole deal removing the foreskin? Circumcision was, this is an adult class, right? Circumcision was uh, common to the surrounding people groups in ancient Israel's day. It wasn't peculiar to Israel. The signification of circumcision for Israel was entirely different. God said, this is a sign of the covenant. Make it a sign. No, no, no. This is what God does. He takes that which is old and familiar... Uh, in the culture, and puts an entirely new, uh, deep and spiritual meaning to it. Uh, Now, exactly as far as the specifics of the procedure, again, physiologically, we know that that's a place where there can be the accumulation of bacteria and germs and things like that. There are some medical people here. Am Am I sort of close or did I just make that up? I think that's sort of that's sort of true. So even from a non-religious, from a personal hygiene point of view, healthfulness of the of the infant, uh, circumcision is a is a good secular practice. But God gave a very uh, important spiritual connection to the rite of circumcision. But anyway, Abraham obeys what God said in Genesis seventeen ten. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every Male among you shall be circumcised. That's what God said. Now verse 5. Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh with me. So here's this play on the word again, Isaac, for laughter. 
by the way, Isaac in Hebrew is Yitzchak. Yitzchak. I say that to you because I'm a little congested today. You, you try that. Yitzchak. And you just clear out everything. Uh, but also to ask you to pray, our guide in Israel, who Lord willing will see in about three weeks, is named Isaac. And he knows more of the Bible probably than most of us. But it's all here from the neck up. It hasn't gone down, what did someone say, 18 inches from here to here to the heart. Because that takes the very Spirit of God to give someone a circumcised heart. Can you pray for Isaac uh, as you think of him? Isaac, he's friendly, he's wonderful, he's lost. He needs the Lord Jesus. And he'd be a marvelous Christ-glorifier already knowing so much scripture and yet not the author of the text in a personal way. Isn't that a mystery? That's just the way it is. So pray for Isaac. So anyway, Isaac again meaning laughter, but now uh, Sarah is saying God has made laughter from... She's using the term in an entirely different way. Now in the sense of joy and rejoicing. Yay, look what God has done. He's given me a cause to be happy and to rejoice. And not only me, but everyone who hears about this marvelous news will rejoice with me. That's the sense of the word in this text. So her laughter of unbelief has now changed to the laughter of faith and thanksgiving and worship in that God has kept his word. Verse 7, she said, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children, yet I have borne him a son in his old age? Folks, it's not just that this lady beyond childbearing years is miraculously enabled to bear a child, but also to breastfeed the child. Are you kidding me? Folks, there is deadness here that is being replaced with life, and it's attributable to one and only the goodness and grace of God. It's nothing they did. did. She didn't start drinking pomegranate juice and get rejuvenated and all this kind of stuff. They didn't go through in vitro fertilization. I'm not making a comment on any of these good or bad. I'm just saying there was nothing they did. Her capacity to bear children, her capacity to nurse was purely due to the goodness and grace of God. Please keep that in mind because it will become quite significant in just a moment. And the child, verse 8, grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the day Isaac was weaned. And in Jewish custom, uh, a baby would be weaned at about age three. Weaned, you understand, weaned off the breast at about age three. And there would be a big celebration, and for sure, the mom, the mother would be celebrating. She'd go, oh my goodness. Give me a break. Three years I've been carrying around this kid with such an appetite. And now, though, so there was like a be a big party sort of a thing. And uh, so probably we can think of Isaac being about age three when the weaning took place. So if he was three, we can figure out that Ishmael, who we'll read about in a second, Ishmael was probably a young teenager, 17. For instance, Genesis sixteen sixteen, Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to him. 86 years old when Ishmael was born. Isaac weaned at about age three. Uh, Abram 100 now, add 14 to 3, 17. Ishmael probably 17. Uh, important to keep in mind in just a second. We're not dealing about with a young seven-year-old. We're dealing with a 17-year-old probably. Verse 9, Sarah saw the son of Hagar, Ishmael, uh, Hagar being Egyptian, Hagar the Egyptian, whom she, Hagar, had bore, born to Abraham, mocking. Do you remember Sarah couldn't produce children for Abraham? She concocted this deal. Abraham, go into my handmaid, an Egyptian woman, Hagar, father a child through her. And uh, what was up with all of that? Um, it was a very culturally 
prominent, predominant and acceptable practice. Did you know that? Because the, the handmaid was like property, considered pos, a possession of the mistress, the owner. <coughs> if this happened, I mean, to not bear a male child in those days was horrible. There's no memorialization of your name. And so Sarah concocts this story, persuades Abraham. He goes along with this deal uh, to father a child through Hagar, Sarah knowing if, if, if it works, then the child would be hers. Uh, the slave woman has no rights whatsoever. You see what I mean? So that's what they did. Folks, uh, though that was a very culturally acceptable practice, that doesn't make it a biblically acceptable practice. Did you know that? You have to distinguish between the two. And it's getting harder and harder. I fear for myself, for you, for my kids, for my grandkids. It's getting very, very harder to determine what the uh, a difference between what the surrounding culture finds acceptable and what God finds acceptable. For instance, I was just reading that a very well-known Christian artist, now not well-known to me because I'm not into that uh, stuff, but... Uh, but some of you are music people, and no, uh, I, don't, I don't remember the name of the lady. But anyway, she just said that she um, she's gay, um, has written beautiful songs and all the rest, and she said that she's gay, and I'm making you all think, what's her name? I don't remember her name, to tell you the truth. I'm sorry. You can look it up. But anyway, um, <clears throat> she said, I have noticed the same gender attraction since I was just a young girl, and finally... I feel free to announce this, and I know God loves me and accepts me the way I am. Does he? Absolutely. He does. She's right about that. But he doesn't accept that which is contrary to his will. She's not contrary to his will. She's a person of worth, of value, not to be demeaned, degraded, or disrespected. Uh, I got all that. Uh, God has not ceased to love her. I understand all that. But the lifestyle is totally discrepant from Scripture. And yet, as I read her pronouncement and articles, she seems like quite a delightful lady, the kind of person you would, you would like as a friend and uh, uh, so on. Uh, as I read all that, I even find myself to say, well, you know, am I right about this? Really? Maybe we... Maybe we, we Bible people are just, maybe we're wrong. I mean, after all, uh, I mean, the culture seems to be, you know, same gender marriage, and our mayor has just you know, got this controversial LBGCT, I don't remember all the initials, whatever, kind of, you know, equal access to facility. Well, I don't know. Everything's getting acceptable today. You watch Home and Garden Show, all kinds of different partners and all the rest. So uh, this is an illustration, I was just thinking, uh, of how what is increasingly culturally acceptable may not be biblically acceptable at all. No, no, is not biblically acceptable at all. Could I please just encourage encourage you, and as I, as I need encouragement, folks, we must stick to the biblical perspective. And we can't look to statistics, to majority rule, to, to what everyone's doing. Whatever. We can't do that. We have to look singularly to the basis of our authority. Did you know it's not the Constitution of the United States? The Constitution is not a sacred document. It's just a great document. We do not look to the doctrinal statement of Sagemont Church. No, no, no. Primarily, we look to the Bible as the measure of our faith and practice. So be very, very careful. It's very, very hard to look into the eye of a, of a likable, dear, wonderful, uh, not, not a monstrous, unattractive person and, and say, yes, God loves you, but, 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 but he does not condone a lifestyle. Uh, he does not condone a, an approach to sexuality that is clearly contrary to his declared and stated model of sexuality in, in the Bible. So this is, this is going to be more and more tougher. So anyway, the practice I mentioned in, here in Genesis was culturally acceptable. Here's my handmaid, go into her, have a child. But it was never, ever biblically acceptable, and there are increasing practices today. Um, the vast majority of um, people who are uh, alive today have no problem living together, living, living together, co- cohabiting. I mentioned to you last week, 60% of college Christian kids surveyed saw no problem with living together prior to marriage. 
And I say to myself, well, maybe I'm wrong about this. I mean, you get two kids, you know, a boy and a girl, they're in college, they've known each other for a long time, they've gone off to college together, they're not promiscuous, they're not sleeping around, they surely intend to marry, they just don't think the timing is right now, economically, you know, they want to wait till they both graduate, and whether it sort of makes, I don't know, doesn't it make sense, doesn't it make, you have to be careful, you have to be careful, but it's, Surely culturally acceptable, but is that the biblical model? No, it is not. Marriage, commitment, public expression of vows, witnessed by uh, friends and family, has to be what takes place first, and then the relationship ensues. Now, maybe some of you are in that situation even as we sit here today. I'm not trying to hurt anyone or... Again, demean anybody, but I, w- I would just say to you, uh, it's probably better to do things God's way. No, better to do things God's way. He doesn't rain on our parade. He knows how to get us to be in the parade and celebrate. He know- His ways are really better than our ways. We shouldn't really lack for evidence about that. We've made a mess of life. Did you know that? We've made a mess of things. Surely Father knows best. So what's culturally acceptable, what's statistically the norm, may not be biblically acceptable at all. You've got to decide. Are you going to be a person of the book? Or of the, 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 the changing culture with all of its knee-jerk changes and stuff like that? All right. So anyway... So a child is born through this partnership between Abraham and Hagar, and it caused real trouble. So now verse 10, Therefore she, uh, Sarah, said to Abraham, Drive out this maid, get rid of Hagar and her son Ishmael, for the son of this maid shall not be an heir with my son Isaac. That sounds terrible, doesn't it? Jealous woman doing these crazy things. And the manner distressed Abraham. He was distressed. Why? Because of his son. Good night. She, uh, Sarah, is asking him, Abraham, to get rid of his son. I mean, Ishmael is his son. But get this, verse 12, very perplexing. But God said to Abraham, do not be distressed because of the lad and you're made. Whatever, God says this, whatever Sarah tells you, listen to her. What? I'm saying, hang on just a second here. What is up? Hagar is in this mess through no fault of her own. She's an Egyptian handmaid. She's being treated like chattel, like property, like a non-person by Sarah. She didn't create this mess. Sarah did. Second, Ishmael is born into this mess. It's not his fault. And I can understand his attitudes. He's mocking his younger brother. Who knows what he's doing? This three-year-old little kid. He's 17 years old. Teenagers do this. Look, when, when there's a new member of the family, a new child, you add a new child to your already existent family, you know what the other kids think? Who is this critter? <laughs> now, you know, getting all this attention. So I, I got all the, I got all, all of that. And, so what's up? God, why, why, I don't understand why you're taking Sarah's side here. What is it? You don't rebuke her. I mean, she's, she, here she goes again. She's a jealous woman. That jealousy, jealousy's not a good deal, is it, God? Why are you supporting her? What's up? Well, here's the answer. It's the last phrase of verse 12. God says, for through Isaac, your descendants shall be named. Whoa, 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 whoa. Through Isaac. So you got Isaac. And you have Ishmael. God said, Isaac's the man, not Ishmael. Is God showing favoritism? Yeah. Does God have a right to do what he wants to do? Yeah. Absolutely. You know what God is saying? You people sinned. I birthed you all. Your creatures whom I have created. I gave you unique capacities. I gave you a mind to think about me. I gave you a heart to love me. I gave you a will to obey me. What, what did you do with those three capacities? You have a mind to think me out of existence. You have a heart which lends itself to non-gods. 
You have a will which you have exercised in disobedience to me. You know what I should do? What I would be justified in doing? Wiping all of you out. You've not given me a good return on my investment. Instead of doing that, I will choose a people group. You object to the fact that I chose a particular people group. You should not object. You should be thrilled that I chose any people group through whom would come a particular Messiah who would offer his life that you whose sin might be saved. That God chose any means of redemption is something we ought to be overwhelmed with. Not that he chose a particular means of redemption. Well, he did. He creates the entire human race. So let's look at the demographic, the population of the world. Let's say it extends as far as my arms could stretch, kind of like this. There's people of the world. Then God starts dealing not with everyone in particular, but with Abraham. So things are narrowed down from this to this. Then God goes from Abraham to a line of promise traced through Isaac. So the population of the world is narrowed down again. Soon we'll see. Then it goes from Isaac, the line of promise, to Jacob, and so on, until you find that the promised redeemer of the world is none other, can be none other than Jesus of Nazareth. It's no blind leap from logic to faith to believe him to be the Savior. God has taken all of the possible candidates in the world and narrowed it down. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and so on, and so on, and so forth, until we go to Jesus. And so now God is saying, uh, I do not support Sarah's jealousy attitude, but I support her suggestion, Abraham, that you separate Ishmael from Isaac. Why? Because the child of promise must be separated, protected, distinguished from the child of the flesh. So now I want to beg your indulgence for the few minutes left before we conclude. I want to call your attention to a text of New Testament scripture that will cast uh, light on the Genesis text perhaps you're not aware of. Galatians chapter 4 is what we'll look at. I'll give you a chance to get there. Galatians 4. And we won't be going back to Genesis 21 now today. We'll stay in Galatians 4 just for the next few moments, beginning in verse 21. And I'll just read for you Galatians 4, verse 21 to 31. And you'll see some very interesting connection to the text we've just read in Genesis 21. This is an illustration of how you want to use the Bible to comment on itself. So in answer to the question, why did God uh, mandate a separation between Isaac and Ishmael, Galatians 4 is going to give us the answer. This shows us the linkage between Old and New Testament. By the way, it's a mark of biblical inspiration. Only a divine author could harmonize Old Testament and New Testament perfectly, you see. And this is what God has done. So here now that you're in Galatians 4, Paul is speaking. He wrote Galatians. Let's, let's read through. Galatians 4, beginning in verse 21. Tell me, you who want to be under the law, who would that be? Well, in particular, Jewish people. My people. Uh, Jews were given the law through Moses, who was a recipient of it on Mount Sinai. Jewish people love the law of God, the Torah. We march it around in scrolls. We kiss it. We bow down before. We do all kinds of stuff. We don't realize that the uh, do this, don't do that aspects of the law uh, are ones we, we have never complied with. We don't realize that, that we love the law, we've never done it. We don't realize that the law can't be done perfectly by us because we're so imperfect. We don't realize that the purpose of the law is not in any way to make us right with God. Nothing wrong with the law. There's a lot 
wrong with us. The purpose of the law is to define our sin, highlight our sin, and show us our need for a Savior. So Paul, so there were people in Galatia in Paul's day who, uh, instead of em- allowing Jesus to embrace them by grace through their faith and save them freely, they were loving the doing of the law as a means by which they could get brownie points with God. It's essentially what's going on. He says, tell me, you who want to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? Do you not understand it fully? Do you realize what the law requires and says about you? For it is written, verse 22, that Abraham, and now Paul is referring back to Genesis, uh, the, the account we've been reading in Genesis 21. It is written that Abraham had two sons. What are their names? Isaac and Ishmael. One by the bond woman. What's her name? Hagar. And one by the free woman. What's her name? Sarah. Uh, Verse 23. But the son of the bond woman. What's his name again? Ishmael. The son of the bond woman was born according to the flesh. What does that mean? It means that, you know, they planned this. It was natural birth. It wasn't supernatural birth. Um, Normal means of conception. Arranged, Sarah was involved, Abraham was involved, Hagar was involved. God was not involved, except in the general sense. I mean, he created the body and birth process. I got all that, but there's nothing really unusually supernatural or miraculous about this. The birth of uh, Ishmael was not the result of a promise of God or anything like that. It's just something, to be honest with you, these three parties pulled off, um, Sarah, Abraham, and Hagar did it. I mean, God made the promise. They didn't want to wait. So they just, in their own strength, that's what it means in the flesh, uh, affected the birth of the child of the bondwoman, Ishmael, born to Hagar. That's what it says. Now verse 24. This is allegorically speaking. Now this is... An allegory is a figure of speech. In this sense, in the Bible, when Paul's using the term allegory, he's essentially saying, I'm going to take a real-life, factual, historical event, and I'm going to derive from it a spiritual insight that is not immediately apparent just by looking to the facts of the historical event. The historical event is what we've read about in Genesis 21. I'd like you to see what Paul makes of it. Verse 24. This is allegorically speaking, for these women are two covenants. The two women are Sarah and Hagar. We're reading about them way back in Genesis 20. Paul says allegorically, not literally, allegorically is a figure of speech to make a a point, give you spiritual insight about what God is up to even through history. These two women represent two different kinds of covenants or contracts with God. One proceeding from Mount Sinai. Well, what covenant proceeded from Mount uh, Sinai? It was the covenant God made with the Jewish people through Moses. Remember when God said, Moses, come up, have everyone else camp out down below. And Moses returned with two tablets on which were inscribed the Ten Commandments. Remember that? The first covenant, covenant, therefore, is a covenant based on the law God gave to Israel through Moses. Ten commandments and the 600 plus additional commandments which flow from them, which are recorded in places like Exodus and Leviticus, stuff like that. So, so the first woman, one woman, is associated with a covenant proceeding from Mount Sinai, bearing children who are to be slaves. In case you're wondering, the text says she is Hagar. Hagar represents a covenant in which people are required in their own efforts to please God. They're under slave. Uh, They're like slaves. Why? Because when the law says don't do this and do that, 
You can't overcome your own nature. You're just disobedient. It's almost like when God said, don't do this, it, it almost brings out our inclination to do the very thing he tells us not to do. The law defines and even encourages our sin. It's like we're slaves. It's like Paul said, oh, no. The very thing I don't want to do, I keep finding myself doing. And what I ought to do, I don't do. Remember what he said? He said, who's going to set me free? In other words, he felt like a slave until Jesus set him free. So, so, so God through Paul, not Stuart, Paul is saying, this is not my interpretation, I'm just reading the text. Paul is saying the two women are like two covenants, and, and one covenant is the one that came from Mount Sinai. This is the one associated with Hagar. Now, verse 25. Now, this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above, the one that God sends down, is free. She is our mother, for it is written, Rejoice, barren woman. Verse 27 is a direct reference to what we've just read in Genesis 21. And you see the linkage between Old and New Testament. Rejoice, barren woman who does not bear. Break forth and shout. You are not in labor, for more numerous are the children of the desolate than of the one who has a husband. And you, brethren, like Isaac, are children of promise. Paul is saying to believers, primarily Jewish believers and others in Galatia, why do you want an association with Hagar, first covenant, when in fact you're tied to a second covenant, a covenant of grace. You're not children of flesh. You are children of promise. Paul is saying, Christians, make sure you make a separation between the covenant associated with Ishmael and the covenant associated with Isaac. Ishmael came about through human creativity, uh, uh, innovation, and effort. That's one covenant. Isaac came about through nothing human. Isaac came about. Isaac was life from death brought about by Almighty God. Isaac's covenant is to be credited to Almighty God as a covenant of grace. Ishmael's covenant, the one associated with him, is centered on human effort. Sarah got involved. Abraham got involved. Uh, Hagar was a party to this whole thing. It's, in other words, Ishmael is a child of fleshly creativity and effort. Isaac is a child of promise. And Paul is saying, if you're a Christian, you are to be associated with Isaac because the new life birthed in you didn't come about by you. You didn't merit your salvation. You didn't earn it. You're not a partner with God in your salvation. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left its crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. It's not Isaac and Ishmael together. It's one or the other. And ah, now I see why God said what he did in Genesis 21. You, Abraham, must listen to Sarah. And Ishmael must be separated from Isaac. Because God in his goodness and grace is giving us an illustration to live by. What's it going to be? Are you saved through your faith by God's grace? Or are you working for your salvation? Isaac and Ishmael have nothing in common. You can't harmonize the two. It has to be one or the other. So there's a denomination who would say, for instance, that to be saved, you have to accept Jesus and be baptized. But don't you see, that's an amalgam of Isaac and Ishmael. And God says, separate the two. They have nothing in common. Even though baptism is valued, particularly by us here in a Baptist church, we would never say baptism contributes to salvation. We would say it simply proclaims the salvation that the Savior has already accomplished. So if it's faith in Jesus plus anything, you've not separated Isaac and Ishmael. 
and the two have nothing, the two covenants have nothing in common. You're either saved by grace or you're saved through works. Ephesians tells us nobody is saved by good works, but we are saved for the doing of good works. We want to do good things by way of saying thank you to Almighty God, but we do not do good things in an effort to please Almighty God. He's pleased with the singular good work of his son. When Jesus died, he uttered the words, it is finished. It's accomplished, the work of redemption, debt paid in full. So now I see why God historically did what he did with Isaac and Ishmael, because he loves us and the world so much, he wants us to see a clear demarcation between two covenants. One is a covenant whereby you do your own thing to please God. The other is a covenant whereby God births new life in you. All religions, every religion in the world is different than biblical Christianity. Every religion in the world is a do-it-yourself approach to God. Christianity is a done-for-you approach to God. In other words, every religion is associated with Ishmael. It's a fleshly, human effort to please God. But biblical Christianity is associated with the covenant with Isaac. It's purely by the grace of God that we have his favor. Now, I want to tell you something. Just as uh, Ishmael mocked Isaac... Look what it says back in Galatians 4, verse 29. But as at that time, Genesis 21, he who was born according to the flesh, Hagar, as at that time, excuse me, Ishmael, he who was born according to the flesh, persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, that's Isaac, so it is now also. Look at that application. You see what Paul is saying? I'm going to take a historical event. I'm going to use kind of a figure of speech just to show you a present-day application. Did you see how Ishmael mocked Isaac? You see how the child of the flesh mocked the child of promise? That happens down to this very day, it says. What does that mean? People who refuse to yield to the goodness and grace of Almighty God, people who underestimate their own sin problem, mock and despise those of us who have. Um, The world would like to persuade itself its sin is not quite as serious a matter as it is. And the world would like to persuade itself we don't need a savior, we can save ourselves, we're not that bad. So people involved in the most morally degrading stuff, lots of Hollywood people, the reason I keep bringing them up is they're in the news all the time. Multiple relationships, crazy stuff. They seem to be on the bandwagon of philanthropy and humanitarian causes and all the rest. These are all good things. It's a way of the sinner persuading himself or herself, I'm not that sinful at all. We are the world. We are the people. You know, we can save the world. We can make it happen. We just love Mother Earth. You know, whether it's an environmental cause, whether it's, you know, campaigning against mines still in the ground in Africa, who knows what it is. They're always a embracing these causes when something in them is causing them to be involved in serial relationships and crazy stuff. And what they're doing is they're masking their own sin through, in my opinion, superficial cosmetic humanitarian efforts so as to say, you Christians who labor under the misconception that you're conceived in sin and have a sin nature and therefore need a savior. Oh, come on. You you Christians who believe you need a savior and that Jesus is that savior and that he is the only one and that the rest of us are going to hell without him, come on. I'm telling you, the whole world is mocking in the same sense in which Ishmael mocked Isaac. What's it going to be? It has nothing to do with male, female, black, white, rich, poor. It has to do with are you associating yourself with the covenant with Isaac or the covenant with Ishmael? Are you associating yourself with law, human effort, supposed human virtue? Or are you associating yourself with grace manifested 
illustrated, exemplified through Isaac. You have to decide. And that's why God said, you've got to make a separation. There's no harmony. These are, these, the, 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 these, are, these are strange bedfellows. Isaac and Ishmael have nothing in common uh, any more than grace and works have something in common. Which one are you going to identify with? Now, we'll end with this because there's very angry, mean people out there. Ishmaelites. See them? They're out there. Just with this. This explains the Middle East conflict today and every day. It's the conflict between the descendants of Ishmael and the descendants, spiritual descendants and literal descendants of Isaac. Think about this. Think about this. For as long as there are the descendants of Isaac alive and in the world, they're a constant reminder of God's grace. Satan hates that. For as long as there are the descendants of Ishmael having sway in the world, it's a reminder of human effort and works. Satan hates the Savior. Satan hates the fact that the Savior is praised as the God of all grace. Jews in the world... Jews, particularly in Israel, are a constant irritation to Satan because they're a constant reminder of God's faithfulness to his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and so on and so forth. All through grace. None of it has to do with any inherent merit on the part of the people. None of it has to do with any of their effort. All has to do with the grace of God. Jews alive in the world today, particularly in Israel, even without a word, are evidence of the graciousness of God. Satan hates that. Hence the Middle East crisis. Isaac versus Ishmael. Well, folks, Lord willing, next week... We'll do some more of Genesis 21. For now, let's thank the author. Lord Jesus, thanks for everything. You are marvelous. You've done marvels. And how you have used the events of history or ordained the events of history like the one we are reading about in Genesis 21 to make eternal spiritual truths so clear. It's a marvel. It's marvelous in our sight. Thank you for all you've done. Thank you for freeing most of us here. Thank you for making us to be identified with the line of promise through Isaac rather than the line of human effort and fleshly endeavor through Ishmael. Oh, God, it's by your grace that we are set free. God of all grace, be praised and honored because of it. Now and forevermore, this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.